Jose, uh, Jesus, I got to tell you something. It's nice to have a wife because who else would tell us what we need to say if it wasn't for our wives? He was like, so anyways, I, I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Listen, my wife says, don't forget to do this. I'm like, and then she's there. She's like, don't forget. All right. Uh, I got two bits of information for us, everybody. So we got a little bit of housekeeping before we go into this. On March 19th, that's two weeks from now, we're going to be starting our services at 930. That's 30 minutes earlier. And I'm going to tell you why. First of all, um, I don't want to rush out of here after I'm done. I want to be able to stay here for 30 minutes after. I want to be able to stay and hang around. You know why? Because I've learned something. I can't tell you that I love you if I'm not here. I can't. You can't mail that in. And I don't want to cheat anyone here. And I don't want to be cheated any of anyone here. And I don't want to cheat anyone at, at a nor, uh, nor, Norwich. Okay? So we're going to do that. And I'm sorry if that upsets your schedules. But you know what, though? God's going to use it. And you know what I think also as well? I think that this opens up the possibility of another service. Because you know what I see? I see a great awakening happening. I see a great awakening happening. Okay, so that's, uh, that's all that I have to say for this. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Remember, this whole series is that we're seeing Jesus throughout the entirety of the scripture. Remember, Jesus' story is not just at the end. But before we do that, I want to talk to a couple different people. I want to talk to the people who I sense in this room that are completely tired. They're beat up. I sense it in the room. They're tired. You know what? When you follow Jesus, you're going to get tired. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged. The second people that I want to talk to is the youth. You know why? Because I started things when I was 12 years old that I'm struggling with to this very day because I'm 56. And you know what? If somebody would have invited me to a youth group, I don't even know if I would have gone. But I know something. That when he enters into your life, he can do things in you and through you. He can do things in your life that gives you a freedom that you can't even fully understand. So I want to encourage you, please, if you're discouraged, look up. And if you're a youth, don't shut down. Just ask. Just ask. Say, if you're there, please let me know. So Father God, I just want to pray. Please, I want to ask you. To do what only you can do. And you know what you can do and no one else can do? Call people out from a grave to live. So we trust in you, God. We trust in you. We trust in you to lift up the head of the weary. To, con to, to give sight and, and, and clarity to those who are confused. And to aliven people to life. True life. The way that it was intended to be. So Lord God, I pray that you would put life in these words, Lord God. Because it's not my message, it's yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read for quite a bit, so stick with me. I'd like you to look at it with me. So it starts out this way in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any of the trees of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, yeah, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat from the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it because if you do, you will die. 
You will not surely die, the serpent says to the woman. For God knows, listen, that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who ate it with her. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he walked through the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, it was the woman. It was the woman. We look at that as a joke, but that's, that's what we have a tendency to do. We blame someone else. We want to take responsibility, right? It was the woman. She gave it to me. The woman said, then the Lord said to the woman, is this what you have done? And the woman said, well, it wasn't me. It was the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, listen, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. For you now will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And he will, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase the pains in childbirth. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and you ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat. Curse, listen, this is the craziest thing. He doesn't curse Adam. He says, cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until, the return, uh, until you return to the ground since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Man, it's a powerful, it's a powerful interpretation of the gospel. You think to yourself, well, this is not the gospel. No, it is the gospel. It is the gospel. Everything is in the Bible is the gospel. Remember what Jesus said in the very opening uh, uh, series of uh, uh, verses that we looked at? The Pharisees, they looked at the word of God, and they applied it to their life because they wanted to grab hold of it. And they thought if they grabbed a hold of it, that it could prove to them how worthy they were of God's affection, of God's thumbs up. And God goes, man, you're missing the point. The point is not for you to be exalted. It's for you to look at me so I can be exalted. So we see the gospel being told over and over and over. The reason that we treasure the Bible, and I don't like the word study. You know why? Because God is not a subject. He's not mathematics. He's not English. He's not history. He's a person. 
And the word treasure is the word that God uses through Peter talking to a husband on how he's to act with his wife. He's to study her. Why? Because he loves her and he wants to love her better. So we study the scripture. We treasure the scripture. And why do we do that? We do that to see God's glory. One of the overarching and overshadowing aspects of God's character and his personality is that he is holy. Can I tell you something about the holiness of God? It's extremely hard for us to understand. You know why? Because there's nothing on earth, nothing at all, that we can compare it to. We can't understand it. It has to be revealed to us. So God has to turn the light on for us to even see it. Remember Nicodemus? Comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, and he goes, good teacher. Obviously, you're a good teacher. You must be a good teacher because you're doing good things. God's got to be with you. Jesus stops him dead in his tracks, and he goes, listen, hold on. Before we even go any further, I can't talk to you. You know why? Because the guy's got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. What he's saying to him is, if you got partial sight, but you can't see the whole picture because you called me good teacher. I'm more than good teacher. I'm the author of life. We can't even go further from that because you can't see me. It's kind of what he's saying. You know, one of the things that I see as I look at the holiness of God, I see God shouting that to me. The overarching and overshadowing aspect of God's character and personality is that he is holy. Every character attribute that God has is governed by his holiness, even his love. We love to say, well, God is love. But did you know that even God's love is never out of proportion to his holiness? There's many people who believe a lie that because God is love, he'll never judge. His holiness demands judgment. It demands it. We have to remember that God is holy. But holiness in the light of the Holy Spirit awakening us to new life doesn't cause us to run away as it did in the garden. No, no, no. Now we run to it. We see the gospel being told to us over and over and over. God's Holiness means that he is perfectly and completely different. Different from what? Different from everyone and everything you have ever known. And when you see him with eyes that have been given to you by grace, you say to yourself, how did I ever live without seeing you before? See, just like Anthony said, today, we don't work toward heaven. Once you see the glory of God, when you see how beautiful he is, when you see how worthy it is, you think to yourself, how could I have not caught this before? It's inappropriate for me to have lived any other way. This is why we are told as God's children, we are not allowed to have any relationship nor any loyalty that's even on the same ground as God. I want you to write this down. The aim of every Christian life is to strive. And the reason I say strive is because you will never live it out completely we strive toward perfection and what is that perfection to love the lord your god with all of your heart and all of your strength and everything that you have you ever going to do that perfectly no i assure you you will never do that perfectly but you know what though anyone who sees him anyone who's awakened to the truth that's all you can think to do i pray it every day lord god help me to love you more i don't love you enough Lord, help me to feel how much more you love me because there's something in my natural incompleteness that blocks that love from getting close to me. Does that do the same for you? 
because it does for me. So I said, overwhelm me with your love. Why? So that I can love you more. And then he says, don't have anyone even beside me. That means not only love me, but make sure that you keep the floor between me and you, just me and you. So this is what we strive for. Paul sees the holiness of God most clearly in the life of Christ Jesus. He, as he's going back through the scriptures, he's like, wait a minute, I, I studied this my whole life. How is it that I didn't get it? How is it that I didn't see this? Now I can see it so clearly. Listen to what he says after he gives the gospel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 33, he goes, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his paths. They go beyond tracing out. Who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You know what he's saying in that? Without saying a word? He lived for his own glory. And as he saw God's glory, he goes, Man, I was really, really out of place. I was really in the wrong place. For 24 years of my life, I was so, so wrong. And then you know what happens as a result of the glory shining in on him? He says this, therefore, if Paul were standing here, he would say to you, in full view of what God has done, in full view of his mercy, I encourage you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. Holy and pleasing. Don't hold anything back from him. If you can see it, if I can see it, if we can see it, if the Holy Spirit opens up our eyes, he goes, this is the only reasonable response. You see it? This is how this is how salvation works in the life of the believer. This is how salvation works in the life of the believer. The lights go on. God shows us his glory. Our hearts are, are overwhelmed. We're in this place of awe. We fall for him. We fall for him in, in, in a way we're like deeply in love and we think to ourselves, okay, now what's my response? How do I demonstrate to this guy how much he's worth. I want you to understand this, that the scripture over and over tells us this, that God is unlike anything or anyone. No one is comparable to him. I heard this, this statement about Jesus Christ, and it struck me so much that I had, to, I had to email it to myself. Jesus was a living contradiction. The people around him had no clue what he was going to do. They had no clue. He was speaking so plainly, so clearly to them, and they had no idea because you know why? God cannot be traced out. You can't figure him out. You're smart. You're intelligent. You're capable. You're able, and that doesn't even come close. He has to reveal himself to you, and sometimes, sometimes we have to wait for it to be completely expired. Listen to what he was. He was both tender-hearted, but Jesus was never weak. Jesus was bold, and not even was he just bold. He would tell you, walk you right up to you and tell you what you needed to hear. But you know what? He was never timid. He was never timid, but he was never harsh. He's always humble, but he was never uncertain of himself. Sometimes humility causes me to go, well, I hope they understand. Jesus was always this way. He was never, never uncertain of himself. He was a person of unbending conviction. You know what he was convicted of? Who he was and what he came to do. But he was always approachable. Jesus was insistent on the truth. 
But you know what Jimmy also is? He's bathed in love. That means when he tells you what you need to know, he doesn't do it in such a way as to crush you. You know, I grew up in a house where my father was one of those Irishmen who wanted to tell you, he used to say this, I tells it like it is. Anybody hear that statement before? Well, I just tell it the way I see it. You know, sometimes my God, my father, <laughs> my father would do that. But sometimes he used the truth like that. Wham! was like a big old sword. And can I tell you something? When you receive the truth like that, you know what it does? It cuts you deeply. It wounds you. It's not meant to heal you. It's not meant to bring goodness into your life. It's actually meant to destroy you. That's not what Jesus does. He was always tenderhearted. Jesus is ultimately powerful. He demonstrated it, but he was always perfectly sensitive. Remember the people that he had a gentle hand with, the ones who had nowhere to go, the ones who were completely rejected by society. He was full of integrity, but he was never rigid. Do you know why? Because he knows who we are. He is mindful that we are made of dust. Jesus is full of passion, but he's never prejudiced. That where, where he thinks to himself, the only words that matter are my words. He met people. He talked to people. He wanted to meet people. You know why? Because he loved them. That's why we study the scripture. Jesus, we see throughout the entire scripture, has always been the reason all things are. If he stood here today, he'd say to you, you are because I am. That's what an I am means. You're here because I'm here. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. And he's the beginning, the preeminent one, the number one from among the dead, so that in all things he might have supremacy. That means he has the top spot. Life is about him. It's created by him, it's created for him, and it's created through him. And he sustains it all together. I'm going to tell you a quick story about King David. Remember King David's life? King David is bringing back the Ark of the Covenant. And he's bringing it to um, Mount Moriah, to the threshing floor. That's going to be the permanent place. Remember, the first time he does it, and he invites the wrong people, and God kills Uzzah. And then the second time, he waits a couple years, does it again. And he's taking it up the hill, and there comes this place where he's right in the middle of it. And he's overwhelmed by the place, by the place that he's at, right? And what does he do? Do you guys remember? He started to strip off his clothes. He didn't dance around in his underwear. Do you ever wonder why he stripped off his clothes? Was it just a simple thing of like ecstatic worship? No. You know what it was? He knew where he was because of the light of the glory of God. And you know what? When he did one of these, because that's what you do. Think about this. You come from your dark house into the 7 o'clock in the morning when the sun's really bright. What do you do? Right? So that's what he did. And he looked back at himself and he realized, wait a minute. I'm dressed like a king in the presence of the greatest king. And you know what he realized? That's dangerous to dress like a king in the presence of another king. It's, it's irresponsible. So you know what he did? Because he loved the Lord and he loved the lordship and the kingship of who he was seeing. He said, let me take my king stuff off so that you can be the focus point. This leads us to a very, very powerful truth. 
You and I cannot be a king in the presence of the king of kings. It's the way it is. This is why we study Jesus. You know why? To be overwhelmed by the idea that he is the focus point for my life. I pray this every day. Do you know why? Because if I forget that truth, I will try to fill that void. That's so incorrect. You could come to church every single Sunday for the rest of your life and still occupy the spot of the center of the universe. But when you see the glory of the Lord, when you really see it empowered by the Holy Spirit, you realize, wait a minute, I'm really not here for me. And then everything else starts to change in an instant of time. Marriage is no longer about me trying to get what I want from another imperfect person. Now it's me loving that person in a way that they may not deserve because that's what Christ does for me. Being a parent isn't a burden because our God is a parent to children who are often wayward and ungrateful. But he loves us just the same. See, everything changes in the light of the king of kings. I cannot be the main purpose of my life. Jesus must be number one. Let's go back to the very beginning. We see Jesus in the very first words that have been spoken into the universe. What was it? Does anybody remember? Let there be, let there be light. Well, my question is, sometimes we read these things, but we don't ever question. We don't ever ask. Well, I just take it. No. Ask questions. If God is real, he wants to answer your questions. And my question was this. What light? What is this light? Because God doesn't create the stars or the sun until day four. So what is the light that he created? Well, praise God, I have some really great helpers. There's this great book that I have from two great professors of biblical exposition. And you know what they said? That this was Jesus turning on the light of his glory. I want you to understand, if there, if, there was a, if there was a switch here for all the lights, the light is still in those bulbs. But unless that switch is turned on, you don't get to see it. See, the glory of God is not something that's created. It's always, it's always existed. But now, because of his beauty, because of his generosity, he turned on the light so that you and I, his elect, his beloved, could go, oh, Oh, wait a minute. That's why I'm here. Do you see it? By turning on the light of his glory, God is telling us that creation, listen to this, because this is way more important than just showing up on Sunday. He's telling you and me that creation amounts to nothing unless he touches it. Remember what he said? I tell you the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus also said, I am the light of the world, and anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness. Jesus is letting us know that unless he illuminates our existence, and I want you to hear this, our life has no direction, it has no clarity, it has no purpose, it has no true joy, and it has no eternal beauty. You may breathe, you may walk, you may live, but it amounts to nothing. 
Boy, that puts Jesus in a little bit of a different category, doesn't it? Kind of makes him a little bit more important than we sometimes have a tendency to want to make him. Isn't it? I think sometimes we want to quickly inject ourselves into scriptures. But I believe that when we look at scriptures, we should be looking at the creator. We should be looking at the light of who he reveals himself to me. And then as we see his light, as we see his beauty, we fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with him. And as I fall in love with him in the light of who he is, then my response becomes logical. I don't want to be a pastor or I don't want a pastor to tell you how to think. I want the light of God's glory to tell you how to think. When I listen to Anthony, I can see he's seen the glory of God. And because he's seen the glory of God, he responds in a particular way. You know why? That's when someone who works with you questions you. You don't have the foolish answer of saying, well, that's what my pastor told me. Who cares about your pastor? I want to be able to say, because the Lord told me. And you know what? If the Lord's told me by his glory, by his beauty, by his majesty, by his holiness, you're not going to convince me of anything other than the truth. See, that's the truth. That's the way salvation works. That's why we study over the word of God. We see Jesus in the creating of an Eden. I want you to think about what we read. Jesus created a place where there was no stress, no opposition, no hostility, no animosity, no insecurity. No fear, no lacking, no hunger, no beauty. What would your life be like without one of those things on that list? That is truly an Eden that Christ came to bring. But the deceiver, the deceiver comes in and you know what he suggests? That God is not good. That God's a controller, that God's a manipulator, that God's holding out on you. And I thought to myself, isn't that the root of every single lie? That you, isn't that the root of every single temptation in my life? Well, you've given enough. It, it, it's, it's for someone else to do. I've done it enough. I've given enough. I've forgiven enough. I, I've sacrificed enough. You know what? It's time for me to live a little bit. I even heard that from someone I work with. You've done your job. It's now for you to have a little bit of fun. Who knows? Maybe tomorrow will be this, even this argument. Maybe tomorrow you get sick. And you know what I thought? If I get sick enough, maybe I'll die and go be with my Jesus. See, you know why? This place has got nothing for me. I was rejected and I was diminished by this world. And now I can live heaven right here and now. And so can you. See, the devil wants us to believe this one lie. Your freedom is about you having to answer to only you. You ever think that? It's about you being able to do what you want and answering only to you. But you know what Satan never tells you? That if you turn yourself over to yourself, you're enslaving yourself to a tyrant who is going to lead you to a dead end. Jesus said this, I have come that they may have life to the overflow. The enemy, he's come to kill, steal, and to destroy Tell you he's got everything you long for. But as you walk down the road, as you believe his lie, as you chew what he has to give you, you find nothing but disillusionment and death. Jesus says, follow me so that you may live. Follow me so that you may live. This tells us two powerful truths. 
Ready? Here it is. That mankind, if he believes a lie, can screw up even a paradise. Isn't that what they did? Everybody somehow makes the mistake of thinking, well, we were sinless. No, we were just without sin. Because if we were sinless, the devil could have tempted us with nothing. But he most certainly tempted us with something. They had it all. And they still chose what they didn't need. This tells me another truth. That nothing can overcome the grace of God. Not in his foolishness, not in his weakness, nor Satan's deceit. Grace always wins. It always wins. What do we see next? Jesus is the one that seeks out the first couple. They don't go looking for him. They run from him. When you sin, do you run from God or do you run to him? Why would you run from him? Do you think God didn't see where Adam was? Do you think he was blind? Do you think he came down? He's like, where the heck are these people? I've been looking everywhere. Where are you at, Adam? We're over here. Why? Well, we're naked. Why would you do that? What did they try to do? They tried to cover themselves with their own righteousness. That's what we do when we try to be religious. Let me cover myself with good works because that will really, this will really cover my, my lacking. But Jesus says, no, I'm the one who has to cover me. I'm the one who has to make what is lacking black and white. I'm the one who makes that shoe. We see the gospel told over and over and over. He comes to look for them. He calls them out from hiding. He's the one that closes their nakedness. They don't look for him to fix the problem. They run away. They diffuse. They point fingers. And they cover up. Then, because he is holy, what does he do? He pronounces judgment. Because he is holy, he has to judge. Remember that. I want us to know that because no gospel is complete unless we tell the people the truth. That judgment must be given. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means there was an intent and purpose for all creation to come into existence. And every human being has fallen short of it. So therefore, God is right to hold us to account. And that means clearly that we will be separated forever. I think to myself what hell will be like. You think it's burning pits where we're screaming all the time? Oh no, I think it's way worse than that. I think it's a place where we're angry with God because he took from us the things that we love the most. I love the world, and now I can have none of it. No grace in hell. There's no hope in hell. Just endless wanting and anger and resentment. That's the worm that I believe he talks about that never ends. That's why we must evangelize. That's why we must bear witness because there are Billions of people that are heading there. God speaks to the serpent. And you know what he does? He says to the deceiver, your time is limited. He's telling Satan how his story ends. One of the things I want us to know about God's judgment is God's judgment is never given without hope. Do you know what the world can only offer us? This is what they can offer us. Hope that is a wish. Well, I'm going to have a barbecue this Sunday, and I hope it doesn't rain. 
I'm going to get a great job, and I hope that this guy who I'm going to go to the thing is going to do it. I'm looking to go to college, but I hope that I can get a good grade. That's not the hope that God offers us in Jesus Christ. The hope that God offers us in Jesus Christ is more like a confident assurance. Do you know why? Because it's not based in anything you bring to the table. It's based 100% on his integrity and promise. He says, I said it, therefore it will be done. At the end of the time, what were the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross? It is finished. You know what he means? He spoke to the universe. He bore witness. He said, everything you tried to do to steal from my father, I have completed and rectified what you have taken. It's finished. The words were so powerful, it caused an earthquake that broke the temple in half. Man, this was powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. He says to the Satan, he goes, your offspring and the woman's offspring, they'll be at war. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. From that point on, the devil's fate was sealed. So what does he do? He goes right to work. If you're following Jesus, you can be expected to do battle with Satan. You know why? Because he hates your guts. Yeah, he's real. Just like I'm real, just like you're real. He hates your guts, wants to destroy your marriage, wants to destroy your faith, wants to take all the way of your joy, all that stuff away. He hates you, wants to get at your kids. You know why? Because he hates God. Can't get at God so he could get at the ones he loves. So he'll try to rob us. So what does he do? Enters into the first family. Cain, Cain. Remember Abel, your brother? His sacrifice was accepted, but not yours. And what does Cain do? He conspires to kill his brother in the field. Why? Why did he do that? You know why? Because he didn't know either of those guys could be the Messiah. He already knew the Messiah was coming. So you know what he was going to do? Destroy the whole first family. So he got one brother to kill another brother. He was the one that whispered into Pharaoh's ear, you better kill the firstborn of Israel. If you don't kill that Hebrewite, you know what's going to happen? A deliverer is going to come from them. You better protect yourself. You see that he whispers in a guy named Haman's ear. You better exterminate the Jews. You know why? Because you don't know what I know. And from the Jews comes the one who's going to take away all those people who are enslaved. He's going to free every single captive. So if you want to be king, Haman, you better kill the Jews. It goes on throughout history. He's the one who counseled Herod. You better dispatch those temple guards. Why? You better kill all those male children under the age of two. Do you know why, Herod? Because if you don't, you're going to be replaced. Remember, that's the same lie that he tells you and me. Don't listen to him. Listen to you. You don't have to worship him. You can be God with a small g. It's either you or him. And then finally, what does he do? He conspires with the Pharisees and the chief priests. He conspires against Jesus. Why? For the good of the nation. Isn't that what he tells them? That guy's got to die for the good of the nation. You want to rule, don't you? You see, the Pharisees, I think, they knew who Jesus was. They knew exactly who he was. And you know what I think? As they saw him for who he was, all they could think to themselves, if he gets to where he's supposed to be, then there's no place for me. 
You know, that's the one thing about Jesus Christ. It puts him up here and us all in the same boat. But you know what, though? Those who see his glory will have it no other way. They're thinking to themselves, I'm grateful to be counted among the multitude. Our enemy has been sowing the same lie forever and ever. If you were him, it's either your king or he's king. He wants you to come to him and die. I want you to live like a small G-O-D God. But Jesus says this to you and I. It's only by dying that we can truly have life. You know why most people don't follow Christ Jesus? Because it's hard. You have to say no to you. And you have to say no to you a lot. I have to say no to myself all the time. No, Tom, you don't have the right. No, Tom, you don't have the right to look. Well, let me look just a little bit. No, don't, don't look. It's not yours. Well, let me just take a tiny taste. No, Tom, you know, if you take a tiny taste, it'll never be enough for you. No, you don't have the right. It's not yours. If I give it to you, then it's yours. So this is where we end. Remember, Satan is opposed. Your enemy, her enemy, your, your offspring and her offspring, you're going to be at war. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Listen to this. This is the best part of the whole thing. All the opposition the enemy throws in God's path only serves to accomplish God's will. Remember those names? Abel. Well, if I just kill Abel, then I can stop God's plan. But you know what we find out in the book of Hebrews? That Abel becomes a witness of a greater sacrifice. Remember Moses, he tried to kill Moses because he didn't want the labor, he didn't want the deliverer of the Hebrewites to be born. So you know what he did? He only served to bring Moses to the place to where he was supposed to be. And what does Moses bring? The law. And why is the law important? It's not for you or me to prove how worthy we are. It's to prove to the beloved how much we need him. The law will never justify you or I. It's always meant for me to see how much I need him. It goes further. Herod's murderous insecurities and prideful. You know what it did? It fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy of the Messiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, and she refuses to be comforted because they were no more. And how about Caiaphas? This is where we end. Let's stand up. Caiaphas has a dream. One man must die so that the nation can live. You know what the most amazing part of that is? You know who delivered that message, that dream? Satan. He delivered the message. You know why? Because he thought in his mind, if I can get Caiaphas to murder Jesus, then I stop God's plan. And you know what he only does? He only serves to open the door to do exactly what God wants so that Jesus could walk through the gates of Jerusalem and go to his throne that he was always meant to be. He accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish. Satan is not God's equal. He is God's prisoner. He is God's lackey. And you know what happens? Because Jesus was allowed to go to the cross, now he has made us children. He has purchased our freedom, and we are no longer slaves. Let us worship like free children. Thank you.